Let's turn in our Bibles tonight to Ezra chapter 6. <clears throat> While you're turning there, if you choose to use the uh, Bible in your pew or follow along behind me on the screen, just a short introduction to where we are in Ezra. Ezra is a book of return to the homeland of the Israelites after they were taken captivity by other nations and after they lived in rebellion against God. And so this is really, if you can imagine a time when you were far, far away from home and you wanted nothing better to go back home, and the God who had promised to bring them home has brought them back to the land of Israel in Ezra. But there is a major problem, as we discovered last week, and that is they were prevented from rebuilding the temple. And so tonight when we pick up this story in chapter 6, the communication that has been sent to Darius now receives a response. So Ezra chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia in the house of the archives where the documents were stored. And in Ecbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which was written a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be sixty cubits, and its breadth sixty cubits, with three layers of great stone, stones and one layer of timber. Let the costs be paid from the royal treasury, and also let the gold and the silver vessels of the house of God which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. And now, therefore, Tetanai, governor of the province beyond the river, Sherebanazi, and your associates, the governors who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild the house of God on its site. Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of, the royal, uh, of, the royal, uh, of, the, of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute to the province from beyond the river. And whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, Wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and, pay, <clears throat> and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also I shall make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill." May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out his hand to alter this or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Then according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar, Bozani, and their associates did with diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, kings of Persia. 
And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of those returned uh, exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. They offered at the dedication of this house of God 100 bulls, 200 rams, 400 lambs, and a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel. And they set the priests in their divisions and the Levites in their divisions for the service of God at Jerusalem as it is written in the book of Moses. And the fourteenth day of the first month, the returned exiles kept the Passover. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves together. All of them were clean. So they slaughtered the Passover lamb for all the returned exiles, for their fellow priests, and for themselves. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. This is the word of our Lord. After reading a passage like this, obviously, you're asking the question in your mind, as I am in mine, what is the point? Part of what we can do in answering that question is to simply retell the history of the story. And in this chapter itself, the story is rather obvious. It's a fascinating story. There's been a request sent to Darius in the previous chapter to stop the rebuilding of the temple. The search is made in the history and discovered that Cyrus had commanded the temple to rebuild, and Darius sends a letter back now commanding the Israelites to rebuild the temple of God and that no one should prevent them from doing so. And in celebration, when the temple is completed, the Israelites celebrate the Passover. That's the history. But have you ever had your parents tell you a story and you just knew at the end there was going to be a point to that story? My dad used to tell me that kind of story about how he left home at eighth grade to work as a hired hand for a farmer. Interestingly, he would tell me that story when I would wake him up at 5.30 in the morning and tell him I was too tired to go deliver my papers on my paper route. He retold his story in order to help me understand where I was in life. And this story in chapter 6 is more than a recounting of history It's a story being retold to help us understand our position in history as well. This is not, first of all, a story that is meant to say, if you don't succeed at rebuilding the temple, just try, try, try again. Instead, it is a story about what we would call the decrees of God. Some of you children in Sunday school learned about the decrees of God this morning, I hear. And tonight you're going to find out that those decrees are not just found in an instruction book that you learned from this morning. They are found in the Word of God. And as they are found in the Word of God, they function in a tremendously important way. What I'm going to tell you from this chapter is something very simple. That God's decrees are the hidden governing of God of His grace in your life. So let me explain that to you as you look here with me at chapter 6. And I want to begin 
By looking at the way, the author transitions from one section of this story to the next. At the end of this letter that Darius sends back to the people in Israel, we find these words in verse 14. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. You'll notice in this chapter, the first time that we hear about a decree is in verse 1, and the second time here is in verse 14. The first part of this chapter, the first, you might say, chapter in this book, is the decree at the beginning of the the chapter, the decree of the King Darius, and then in verse 14, the decree of God explaining his action in the letter that Darius returned to the Israelites. Now, what I want you to think about for just a moment is what what it would have been like to receive this letter from King Darius. You may know that King Darius, at this point in history, was a supreme. He was the sovereign. There was no one greater than him in any nation in the world. He was legitimately the most important person in the most important country that existed in the world. He is not the Darius that we find in the book of Daniel. That Darius was many generations before. This is a different Darius. In fact, it is believed that these people, these Assyrians, named many of their rulers Darius, just like we have another King Charles ruling in England. This Darius was not just the sovereign in his country, he was a sovereign in his world. And that power was not unique to Darius alone. No, that power as sovereign before had been exercised by Cyrus. And the key thing that I want you to think about tonight is that the power to issue a decree by a sovereign is really the key to understanding the events in chapter 6. And it may be difficult for us to understand how this sovereign would work in our world. For example... I am not sovereign in my world as much as I might think that I am. I do not have the choice how fast I want to drive down Fulton Street through Ada. I most certainly cannot decide how much tax I'm going to pay to the state and federal governments. And I have no choice in regard to various rules that are imposed on me by our state and especially by our local municipality. Those are not things I can control. A greater power than me imposes these rules on us. Many of them very good rules, helpful rules, so that our society is well organized. But the point is, I am not a sovereign. But the people of this time would have understood what a sovereign was. In fact, it is almost too easy to say, but it is true, that whatever the sovereign determined to do in his world at this point was the law of the land. He had that much power. There was no law greater than Darius. Darius was the law. And because Darius was the law, he had the right to command that something was done and something would be done precisely according to his instruction. 
And therefore, we find at the end of his letter in verse 12 that he says the temple should be rebuilt according to the command of Cyrus a generation before, and no one back in Israel had the right to to oppose him. What he said would be done. But I want you to see that the writer of Exodus does not leave things there. Again, he is telling this story for a point. When the temple and its rebuilding resumes, verse 14 says, there is a hidden hand behind the letter of sovereign Darius. There is a sovereign greater than sovereign Darius, and that is God himself. And the writer notes in verse 14 two reasons why we say this is true. First, he says, the rebuilding of the temple was through the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah the prophets. They spoke, and the Israelites prospered in the work that they did. These prophets were sent by God in order to encourage the Israelites If you go back and read through the prophet Haggai, or rather in our edition of the Scriptures, you would go forward to near the end of the Old Testament. You would find that Haggai, his burden, was to encourage the Israelites to build, to continue building. And the way that he did that was by pointing them to a future in which the temple they were rebuilding would anticipate the greater glory that was to come. It's sort of the motivation, I imagine. I have a friend who coaches football, and I imagine him sometimes saying to his, to his players, the practice that you invest in now might eventually lead to us winning a championship. Practice hard. Do your best. There's a better future coming. Haggai is telling the Israelites that. You're not just building a temple. You're not just rebuilding a building. You're anticipating the great glory of God when it comes to earth. And the prophet Zechariah emphasizes something similar. He looks back first to the faithfulness of God. He talks to the Israelites how their forefathers were helped by God. And if God helped them, he would help their forefathers. He would help them as well. And then Zechariah makes the same turn that Haggai does. He says, not only has God been faithful in the past, he will also be faithful to you in the future. And because God is faithful to you in the future, there is coming a time when God will reveal his glory in a far greater way than this temple we're building can ever contain. There is a temple still to come. He says, a glory that will still be revealed. Your work now matters for the future. And in case you didn't catch it, let me explain it a little more clearly. What these prophets were doing was locating the Israelites and their rebuilding of the temple within the greater story of God's redemptive plan. What they were experiencing is not Darius's history, not simply his instruction. They were experiencing the powerful hand of God at work in their world. This is God's redemptive story. And the prophets encouraged them by saying, you're part of something much greater than yourself. Work and work hard because God is at work now for a future. And to emphasize that encouragement, it says in verse 14 that they finished building by the decree of the God of Israel. 
And that decree of the God of Israel was then worked out through the decrees of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes. You can see what a decree is within this chapter. There is the decree of a king who has power in his kingdom to bring something to pass. But the writer says, really, the hidden hand that was moving the heart of the king is the sovereign God of heaven and earth. He is issuing a decree. He is calling something forth. He is determining what happens in the present. Like I said at the beginning of this sermon, one of our children's Sunday school classes studied the question and answer from the shorter catechism. I see the teacher smiling. It's question and answer seven. In the catechism designed for children, it asks the question, If you're a child in this catechism question, feel free to speak this along with me. The question is, what are the decrees of God? And the answer is, the decrees of God are His eternal purpose according to the counsel of His will, whereby for His own glory, He has foreordained whatever is coming to pass. There is nothing The catechism is claiming, based on stories like this, that does not happen according to God's will. God is governing your life. It is not a random set of events that just happen to fall into place. The Israelites' rebuilding of the temple, even with the opposition to that rebuilding, was not absent God. It wasn't God sitting on the sidelines, waiting for all the trouble to cease before he joined the action again. No, our God was at work both in the trouble and now in the success. He is busy in our troubles and our successes. Both his decrees are that hidden hand governing what is happening in our lives. I just want to think for a moment with you what the alternative might be. Let's say that you say to me, Pastor, I'm not convinced by the Word of God, this place or other places, that God's hand is really the thing that moves the events of history. In fact, how can you claim that? Aren't there other things that are more important than God or things that are next to God? How can we say that God controls all things? Well, let me ask you, my friend, if it is not God that controls all things, but there are other factors that can move God and change God's plan, then what is the meaning of the events in your life? How is it possible that your struggles as well as your joys are bringing you to a good end? If you believe that your suffering has purpose, and the Bible says your suffering does, the only way that suffering is possible is if the decrees of God, the hidden hand of God, working in every event, if that's actually true. And so, based on verse 14, I simply want you to see this important thing tonight. In our families, in our children, in our nation, in our marriages, in our health, Whatever it is in our lives that we think about, the sovereign of all the universe is bringing his will to pass in that particular area of our life. There is none that escapes our God. But there is one other place in this chapter, again, that sort of brings together what is happening. Or to say it again, this story is being told with a purpose. And once 
the author tells us what that purpose is, to show us that God is issuing decrees. He is the God that stands above all of history, bringing this all together for an end. But now if you look in your Bibles to verse 22, you'll see the second place in which the author brings sort of a conclusion to the events. He casts a gloss on the events of history. It says, And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. If you remember back to what I said when I started the sermon tonight, I said God's decrees are as often the hidden hand governing by grace in your life. And I haven't said very much about grace up to this point, but here's where I want to speak about that grace. At the end of the chapter, after the temple has been rebuilt, the Israelites celebrate. And it's not just a feast, it's not just a party. They celebrate a particular festival called Passover. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread that was always attached to the Passover, together it would have been more than a week of celebration of what God had done. This place in the Bible is not the first we read about Passover. No, it's commanded to be celebrated based on the events of Exodus chapter 12. In that chapter, we read about the Israelites in captivity in the nation of Egypt and God through a whole series of powerful acts, the ten plagues, culminates in the final plague, which is the sending of the angel of death. And the only way the Israelites and their households escape the angel of death is that God puts blood upon, they're called to put blood upon their doorpost. And it is through the blood of the lamb whose, whose blood is spread in the doorpost that the angel of death passes by their homes. And God uses that particular horrific event to lead the Israelites out of captivity into the wilderness and eventually to the promised land. To put it very simply, for the Israelites, the celebration of the Passover was a celebration of release from slavery. It was the biggest Old Testament redemption story. When we think about redemption on the cross, the Israelites would have thought about redemption from the nation of of Egypt. It was a redemption that anticipated the cross. Obviously, the cross is the conclusion. But the events that happened at Passover were that big in their mind. It would have stood as the archetype of the redemption that was to come in Jesus. And now the writer says the people of Israel understood the connection between what had happened by the decree of God, that is the rebuilding of the temple, And the celebration of the Passover that demonstrated God's grace. Or to put it this way, they understood that the same grace that was in operation in the Passover that led them out of slavery is the same grace that operated as the temple was rebuilt by the decree of God. That is, the decree of God operated from grace. It was not a random decree. It was not simply God imposing his will, although he certainly had the ability to do that. No, God was 
causing the temple to be rebuilt for the same reason he saved the Israelites in the Old Testament. It was because he had set his affection on them, he loved them, and he was treating them graciously. And do you know why they responded with joy? It wasn't simply that their project was finished and the temple was rebuilt. They were celebrating the operation of God's grace and His decree. He was gracious in them saving them the first time in Egypt, and He had brought them back to the land of Israel by His grace, and He would remain at work in them by this same grace. Which leads me to simply say to you tonight as I began a few moments ago when I said God's decrees are the often hidden governing of His grace in your life. And that is true not only in the Old Testament. It is also just as true for you. Paul says that we can be content because in all things God is working those events of our lives for good. Which means even the most difficult times, when it seems as though the projects that we are working on for the sake of God are thwarted, God intends to bring good even out of those difficult times so that the grace that is an operation in our lives would be put on great display. Again, I tell you tonight this simple truth And I tell you, not simply because I want your head to know it, but I'm hoping your heart will rest in it. God's decrees are the often hidden hidden governing of grace in your life. May you really mull that over and believe it. This sovereign God is at work in the events, all the events of your life, by His grace for your good. That is your good news, friend. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you that this truth that we have heard from your word is not just a story, it's a history. It's an account of what really happened. But the author not only gives us the raw events He also helps us by explaining what those events mean so that for each one of us as we listen tonight to this truth, we can be assured that in our lives the decree of God, that will, that sovereign will that you are bringing to pass in this world is not random. It is not without goal or intention. But just as certainly as you move the heart of the most powerful man in the world to do good for your people, You can just as certainly move in the circumstances and in the people in our lives to likewise do good for your people because of your grace. We rejoice in that tonight and pray that we would see the truth of this passage clearly and it would give us great comfort, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.